Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. Tonight's story is The Haunted Burglar by W.C. Morrow. Anthony Ross doubtless had the oddest and most complex temperament that ever assured the success of burglary as a business. This fact is mentioned in order that those who choose may employ it as an explanation of the extraordinary ideas that entered his head and gave a strangely tragic character to his career. Though ignorant, the man had an uncommonly fine mind in certain aspects. Thus it happened that, while lacking moral perception, he cherished an artistic pride in the smooth, elegant, and finished conduct of his work. Hence, a blunder on his part invariably left him filled with grief and humiliation. And it was the steadily increasing reoccurrence of these errors that finally impelled him to make a deliberate analysis of his case. Among the stupid acts with which he charged himself was the murder of the banker, Uriah Matson. A feeble old man whom a simple choking or a sufficient tap on the skull would have rendered helpless. Instead of that, he had choked his victim to death in the most brutal and unnecessary manner, and in doing so had used the fingers of his left hand in a singularly sprawled and awkward fashion. The whole act was utterly unlike him. It appalled and horrified him. Not for the sin of taking human life, but because it was unnecessary, dangerous, subversive of the principles of skilled burglary, and monstrously inartistic. A similar mishap had occurred in the case of Miss Jellison, a wealthy spinster, merely because she was in the act of waking, which meant an ensuing scream. In this case, as in the other, he was unmistakably shocked to discover that the fatal choking had been done by the left hand with sprawled and awkward fingers, and with a savage ferocity entirely uncalled for by his peril. In setting himself to analyze these incongruous and revolting things, he dragged forth from his memory numerous other acts, unlike those two in detail, but similar to them in spirit. Thus, in a fit of passionate anger at the whimpering of an infant, he had flung it brutally against the wall. Another time he was nearly discovered through the needless torturing of a cat whose cries set pursuers on his heels. These and other insane, inartistic, and ferocious acts he arrayed for serious analysis. Finally, the realization burst upon him that all his aberrations of conduct had proceeded from his left hand and arm. Search his recollection ever so diligently, he could not recall a single instance where his right hand had failed to proceed on perfectly fine, sure, and artistic lines. When he made this discovery, he realized that he had brought himself face to face with a terrifying mystery. 
and its horrors were increased when he reflected that while his left hand had committed acts of stupid atrocity in the pursuit of his burglarous enterprises, on many occasions, when he was not so engaged, it had acted with a less harmful, but none the less coarse, irrational, and inartistic purpose. It was not difficult for such a man to arrive at strange conclusions. The explanation that promptly suggested itself, and that his coolest and shrewdest wisdom could not shake, was that his left arm was under the dominion of a perverse and malicious spirit. That it was an entity apart from his own spirit, and that it had fastened itself upon that part of his body to produce his ruin. It were useless, however inviting, to speculate upon the order of a mind capable of arriving at such a conclusion. It is more to the point to narrate the terrible happenings to which it gave rise. About a month after the burglar's mental struggle, a strange-looking man applied for a situation at a sawmill a hundred miles away. His appearance was exceedingly distressing. Either a grievous bodily illness or fearful mental anguish had made his face wan and haggard and filled his eyes with the light of a hard desperation that gave promise of dire results. There were no marks of a vagabond on his clothing or in his manner. He did not seem to be suffering for physical necessities. He held his head aloft and walked like a man, and an understanding glance would have seen that his look of determination meant something profounder and more far-reaching than the ordinary business concerns of life. He gave the name of Hope. His manner was so engaging, yet withal so firm and abstracted, that he secured a position without difficulty. And so faithfully did he work, and so quick was his intelligence, that in good time his request to be given the management of a saw was granted. It might have been noticed that his face thereupon wore a deeper and more haggard look, but that its rigors were softened by a light of happy expectancy. As he cultivated no friendships among the men, he had no confidants. He went his dark way alone to the end. He seemed to take more than the pleasure of an efficient workman in observing the products of his skill. He would stealthily hug the big brown logs as they approached the saw, and his eyes would blaze when the great tool went singing and roaring at its work. The foreman, mistaking his eagerness for carelessness, quietly cautioned him to be aware that when the next log was mounted for the saw, the stranger appeared to slip and fall. He clasped the moving log in his arms, and the next moment the insatiable teeth had severed his left arm near the shoulder, and the stranger sank with a great groan into the soft sawdust that filled the pit. There was the usual commotion attending such accidents, for the faces of workmen turn white when they see one of their number thus maimed for life. But Hope received good surgical care, and in due time was able to be abroad. 
Then the men observed that a remarkable change had come over him. His moroseness had disappeared, and in its stead was a hearty cheer of manner that amazed them. Was the loosing of a precious arm a thing to make a wretched man happy? Hope was given light work in the office and might have remained to the end of his days a competent and prosperous man. But one day he left, and he was never seen thereabout again. Then Anthony Ross, the burglar, reappeared upon the scenes of his former exploits. The police were dismayed to note the arrival of a man whom all their skill had been unable to convict of terrible crimes when they were certain he had committed. And they questioned him about the loss of his arm, but he laughed them away with this fine old sang-froid which they were familiar. And soon his handiwork appeared in the reports of daring burglaries. A watch of extraordinary care and minuteness was set upon him, but that availed nothing until a singular thing occurred to baffle the officers beyond measure. Ross had suddenly become wildly reckless and walked red-handed into the mouth of the law by evidence that seemed irrefutably a burglary and atrocious murder were traced to him. Stranger than all else, he made no effort to escape, though heaving a hanging trail right behind him. When the officers overhauled him, they found him in a state of utter dejection, wholly different from the light-hearted bearing that had characterized him ever since he had returned without his left arm. Neither admitting nor denying his guilt, he bore himself with the hopelessness of a man already condemned to the gallows. Even when he was brought before a jury and placed on trial, he made no fight for his life. Although possessed of abundant means, he refused to employ an attorney and treated with scant courtesy the one assigned him by the judge. He betrayed irritation at the slow dragging of the case as the prosecution piled up its evidence against him. His whole manner indicated that he wished the trial to end as soon as possible and hoped for a verdict of guilty. The incomprehensible behavior placed the young and ambitious attorney on his mettle. He realized that some inexplicable mystery lay behind the matter and this sharpened his zeal to find it. He plied his client with all manner of questions and tried in all ways to secure his confidence. Ross remained sullen, morose, and wholly given over to despairing resignation. The young lawyer had made a wonderful discovery, which he at first felt confident would clear the prisoner. But any mention of it to Ross would only throw him into a violent passion and cause him to tremble as with palsy. His conduct on such occasions was terrible beyond measure. He seemed utterly beside himself, and thus his attorney had become convinced of the man's insanity. The trouble in proving it was he dared not mention his discovery to others, 
and that Ross exhibited no signs of mania unless that one object was broached. The prosecution made out a case that looked impregnable, and this fact seemed to fill the prisoner with a peace. The young lawyer for the defense had summoned a number of witnesses, but in the end he used only one. His opening statement to the jury was merely that it was a physical impossibility for the prisoner to have committed the murder, which was done by choking. Ross made a frantic attempt to stop him from putting forth such a defense, and from the dock wildly denounced it as a lie. The young lawyer nevertheless proceeded with what he deemed his duty to his unwilling client. He called a photographer and had him produce a large picture of the murdered man's face and neck. He proved that the portrait was that of a person whom Ross was charged with having killed. As he approached the climax of the scene, Ross became entirely ungovernable in his frantic efforts to stop the introduction of the evidence. And so it became necessary to bind and gag and strap him to the chair. When the quiet was restored, the lawyer handed the photograph to the jury and quietly remarked, You may see for yourselves that the choking was done with the left hand, and you have observed that my client has no such member. He was unmistakably right. The imprint of the thumb and fingers forced into the flesh in a singularly ferocious, sprawling, and awkward manner was shown in the photograph with absolute clearness. The prosecution, taken wholly by surprise, blustered and made attempts to assail the evidence, but without success. The jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Meanwhile, the prisoner had fainted and his gag and bonds had been removed, but he recovered at the moment when the verdict was announced. He staggered to his feet, and his eyes rolled. Then, with a thick tongue, he exclaimed, It was the left arm that did it! This one! Holding his right arm as high as he could reach, never made a mistake. It was always the left one. A spirit of mischief and murder was in it. I cut it off in a sawmill. But the spirit stayed where the arm used to be, and it choked this man to death. I didn't want you to acquit me. I wanted you to hang me. I can't go through life having this thing haunting me and spoiling my business and making a murderer of me. It tries to choke me while I sleep. There it is. Can't you see it? and he looked with wide, staring eyes at his left side. <clears throat> Mr. Sheriff, gravely said the judge, take this man before the commissioners of lunacy tomorrow. The Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. If you like to connect with me, you can reach me on my social media.
Instagram, Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or email at Marley's Ghosts podcast at gmail.com. And you can learn more about Marley's Ghosts on our website at Marley's Ghosts podcast.com. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.